Okay, so this is uh, our topic for tonight, Adam, Identity and the Gospel. And, and the title doesn't reflect the order in which I'm going to be uh, covering this. We're going to begin with identity. I'm going to spend most of the time on that tonight. I want to, and I want to show how this biblical understanding of our identity rests on uh, what we believe about Adam in the Bible, the first man. And then finally, just to show how the gospel is the uh, is really the answer to the problems uh, that we have with our identity that actually stem back to uh, our identity in Adam. So why the order in this title? Well, the original version of this talk was uh, given at uh, Answers in Genesis conference. That's one of the louder creationist groups. Okay, Um, And since on that occasion I was speaking for a rival organization, I thought I should show that I was sort of on message. So that's why I made sure that my talk spelt out um, the, 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 the logo for AIG, you see. Uh, but that context does explain some of the sort of context. Uh, sorry, that context does, try, does explain how I'm coming at this topic. Because lots of, lots of Christians think this whole question of origins doesn't really matter. You know, creation or evolution, well, I'm not really very interested in it. I'm not a scientist. Does it really matter? You know, we believe God's the creator. Does it really matter exactly how he created? How is, how is the sort of history of how we got here got any theological significance? Let's just stick to the gospel. Well, I want to show you that this whole issue of human identity is totally tied to what we believe about origins. It directly relates to the gospel. And that gives us a great opportunity because so often, you know, you talk to non-Christians, they're not actually very interested in the sort of things that we're saying. But actually, what they are interested in is very much these issues of identity. So if we can um, address those, I'm going to show you how this is actually totally tied to the gospel. And part of our, our job is to show what it means to be human. We sort of sometimes think we've got to make everyone really spiritual. No, we've actually got to show people what it means to be human. That's part of uh, what we can do as Christians today. So... Let's begin with this uh, theme of identity. Now, I'm sure it's a sort of word that that, uh, sounds a little bit sort of opaque, makes you a bit glaze over, you know, identity. Well, who thinks about their identity? We just get on with life, don't we? Well, actually, we think about identity all the time. We're all wearing clothes tonight. Most creatures on the planet are not. So that's already telling something about what you think about yourself and what and what how you think you're different to, people, to to other creatures around you. We had a cooked meal this evening. That's something that's unique to humanity. Our creativity with food. Look at this cartoon here. Um, people of a certain era remember Gary Larson. Why do we Why do we find that funny? Uh, if you replace that with people, that would be obscene. But we think that's funny because we recognize human identity and horse identity are different. What about social media? That's all about projecting something about our identity, perhaps what we want people to think about us, an identity we want to create for ourselves, what, how we want other people to think of us. Well, look at these examples. Okay, this was a Lego exhibition in London a few years ago about, about superheroes. And, and I was really intrigued that you had all these sort of captions about identity. These are things that were written under some of the, the, the sort of models. You know, what kind of hero will you be? Take a look at yourself, a deep look. Think about who you are. Boy, this is a bit, bit heavy, isn't it? You know, this is that sort of religious stuff, isn't it? 
No, well, you got it there in a, in a Lego exhibition. Um, remember who you wanted to be as a kid. Hang on to those original dreams because the purest essence of who you are, of who you were meant to be, is there. It's a message about identity in, in this, just this exhibition. Uh, interestingly tied with this whole concept of being a superhero. What about another example? Someone saying, I'm gay. To describe yourself as homosexual used to be a statement about behavior, about what you did. Now it's a statement of identity, of who you are. Look how uh, Rosaria Butterfield puts it. Sexuality used to be a verb about what you did. Now it's about who you are, your identity. And that is why to question homosexual lifestyle today is so offensive. It's, it's not sort of disagreeing with something that someone does. It's an attack on your very identity. It's about not really accepting who you are. That's why people get so upset by it. And the, one of the reasons identity is so important is that it shapes what we do. There's a close link between identity and behavior. And again, this isn't complicated. We actually all instinctively get this. Um, I don't know if you uh, grew up with this, Ben and Holly's little kingdom. It's, it's all here. It's full of theology, okay? Um, you've got a kingdom of fairies and, a, and, and elves, okay? The fairies are in charge. They use magic. They fly around. The elves are a bit different. They just work very hard. They hate magic, and they blow little horns. And because their identity is different, some are elves, some are fairies, they do different things. So Ben Elf says things like, elves are good at making things, and I'm an elf. And then he blows a horn just to prove the point, to make sure you know. So the whole point about that is that, that what, you, what, you, what it is right to do, what, what, what you should do, is determined by who you think you are. You're meant to act in line with your identity. Your purpose is linked to your identity. Your value is also linked to identity. Here's a, here's a, a rather gruesome example. Some years ago, I was uh, shown an, an ISIS video okay, from Islamic State. Um, I was shown this, believe it or not, by our local MP. Um, there was a good reason why he was doing this. I won't go into all that. But in this video, it showed uh, a number of people strapped in a car, and then missiles were launched to destroy the car. It wasn't gory. It was just incredibly sort of chillingly callous because this was, this execution was filmed basically from lots of different angles like a movie. And it's, it's an image I still can't get out of my head. But why was I so shocked by it? Why is that so disturbing? Well, it wasn't the destruction of the car. And I'm not being flippant when I say that. I'm making a very serious point about why do we view the car differently to the people? Because after all, the car is a complex mobile object made of metal. People are complex mobile objects made of meat. And according to the evolution story of life, that's all we are. We are meat in motion. We have no intrinsic value. That is a very different identity to what we find in the Bible. It tells us that we are people of infinite value, not because of what we're made of, but because of who made us. Let's look at this uh, biblical understanding of our identity, summarized here in Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
this is what is unique to humanity. Other creatures were made from the ground on day six, but only mankind is made as the image of God. It's repeated three times in Genesis 1. And just from the sort of context of what's going on here, we can get a a pretty decent idea of what the image of God means. It's something that some people have tried to make incredibly complicated. I don't think it needs to be very complicated. At one level, it's telling us we've been made by God. We are creatures. Our life derives from God. We didn't make ourselves. We don't have life in ourselves. We are dependent and limited. We're also made like God. Whatever image means, it must mean some degree of similarity. We're not the same as God, but we reflect God to some degree. For example, we rule like God. And I think the details of that are spelt out as we read on in the rest of the Bible. We have these capabilities that enable us to do that. We have language. We can create. We can plan. We can reason, imagine, love. And it's because of that we can have this uh, relationship with God. We've been made for God. You see, animals are made by God. But God doesn't have a conversation with the animals. There isn't a personal relationship in the way that we find him interacting with mankind. So part of our value comes from our relationship with God, and which, of course, means we're accountable to God. And just note as well here that I keep saying we and our image of God is not merely individual. Our identity as human beings is not simply as individuals. God is speaking here, that, that, that verse in Genesis 1, about mankind corporately, who come in these two forms, male and female. I'll come back to that later. But God's, God's treating humanity as a unity. And our, our identity as human beings is tied to our relationship with other human beings as well. It's not good for us to be alone. So let me summarize our our human identity by a sort of network of relationships. It's a diagram we're going to keep coming back to. We have a relationship with the world. I'm a physical being. I've got a body. That's part of my identity. That's part of who I am. I'm made of atoms. I'm part of the universe. That governs what I'm able to do. I can't live underwater. I can't uh, live in a vacuum or a furnace. I can't be in two places at once. I have this, this relationship to the world. I'm, I, my identity is also linked to geography. Places matter. That's why places matter in the Bible. Not, it's not just sort of padding. For us, places matter. They shape our identity, where we grew up, where we were born. It's all part of who we are. We also have a relationship with God. We are physical people, but we're not merely physical people. We're spiritual people, able to pray to an unseen God. But never think of the spiritual as somehow sort of trumping the physical. It's not that the spiritual is what really matters. That would be like saying that uh, it's the left wing of the aeroplane that matters. No, no, it's both parts of us. Our bodies matter. Our, Our physicalness is not some sort of encumbrance we want to escape. That's not how God sees it, because he took the trouble to make a physical world and to come and dwell within that world and with the future hope of of living in that world himself. He's given us physical bodies. So the physical and the spiritual are brought together in our human identity. And we also have a relationship with other people. 
Our identity is defined by this network of relationships, primarily family. So much of who I am, what I look like, the character I have comes from my parents. What makes me unique is the particular set of family relationships that I have. No one else has the same father, mother and uh, two sisters as me. One reason why genealogy in the Bible is so important. Again, it's not just irrelevant padding that could be stripped out and it wouldn't matter. It's, it's all part of what God is telling us. There's no such thing as a, as a sort of independent uh, or an isolated independent individual. Everything we do as individuals impacts other people. There's no such thing as me in isolation. I'm part of this network of relationships. And the key thing is that this is an identity that's been given to me. It's a gift. It's something received, not achieved. And it's my job to live in line with that identity. It's something fixed. It's stable. That's the biblical view. In contrast to that, we have what I'm calling meism, which is basically the view of identity uh, in our culture today. In this, your identity is something that you choose, something you create for yourself. It's something achieved, not received. And I'm going to give examples of that in a moment. But understand this, it really comes from a, a direct result of dismantling the sort of idea of identity that God has given us. It's an attempt to deny this network of relationships that, that we've set out. But it can only ever sort of attempt to do that because we're constrained by reality. So on the one hand, we, we try and deny our relationship with God. We, we think we're self-sufficient. We think we can solve our own problems. You'll never hear a politician say, you know, this is a really difficult problem. We need to pray about this. We, we reject that any concept of spiritual reality. And yet we can't escape the reality of who we are. We do still worship. We still seek to find meaning in what is not physical. And if anything characterizes our age, it's actually an incredible moralistic spirit. We've never been more moralistic in condemning what we believe is wrong, be that homophobia or remitting too much carbon dioxide or whatever else it might be. You know, social media is full of self-righteousness. The Pharisees today are increasingly the sort of cultural elite, and you'll be condemned if you step out of line with their morality. And we need to, we need to push back against that. You know, they're, they're being the moralists. It's not Christians. There's a denial of our relationship with the world. Now, this might seem a bit strange because on the one hand, our culture insists that, that the material is everything. We're just atoms. And yet, when it comes to our identity, we keep trying to escape our physical limitations. We like to think that, uh, we don't have those sort of limitations. You can sort of text and drive at the same time without uh, compromising either. Well, actually, we can't. We're limited. The whole um, attraction of pornography or is in part an escape from the messy complexity of interacting with a real body, a real person. Or think of video games. You can create uh, another identity. You can be a sort of superhero you can be invincible in the game by escaping your normal bodily limitations. Uh, transgender is another example we'll, we'll come back to in a moment. 
And then there's the denial of our relationship with others, which might sound a bit odd because surely we're obsessed with relationships, but it tends to be relationships that we choose. We're less keen on relationships that are fixed, that require commitment, come what may, whatever the cost, be that membership of a club or marriage. In other words, we want relationships insofar as they serve our needs. Something that is sort of almost imposed on us, well, that, that is constraining to our freedom. But look what happens when you cut all those relationships. You're left with me. It's just you. And it's an undefined you. It doesn't depend on anyone else. And there's a certain sort of freedom I get about this, I guess. But it's the freedom of a free-floating cloud. You have an identity that can keep on changing. It's what you choose to be. The problem is you've created a me that is no longer important. Me has no objective intrinsic value. I'm just atoms, remember, and I'm not particularly expensive atoms. I'm just carbon mainly, not platinum. I'm meat in motion. So if I'm going to have value, I'm going to have to create my own worth, my own significance. How am I going to do that? Well, it's going to be in competition with all the other me's, also all trying to create their own significance. Welcome to our world. So you're creating your own worth. So this is the world of meism. Your worth is how popular you are, how many likes you have, how famous you are, the desire to be a celebrity. Or maybe your worth is your beauty, how attractive you can be to others. Or maybe your success, your achievements, exams, sport, business, money, how much impact you can make. Sometimes people say, I want to be someone that makes a difference. Or maybe it's through being a victim. There's a bizarre thing in our culture where culture even puts it, victimhood is the key virtue. If you've suffered, if you've been oppressed, marginalized, faced injustice, faced injustice, you are someone to be noticed, to be admired and to be affirmed. You're, you're given worth through that. Increasingly, victims are the real heroes of history. And so to be a victim is a sort of route to empowerment. But what do you do if you lose your victim status or if you don't achieve or if you lose your popularity? Or if you lose your good looks, it's not just a setback, a disappointment. You've lost your very identity, your very self. In a way, you've lost your reason to live. Hence, suicide. You see, meism actually leaves you very insecure. It leaves you with this sort of crushing responsibility of justifying your existence. And it's not just an issue for young people. If your identity is not dependent on anything outside yourself, then consider the implication from someone suffering dementia. If you can't remember who you are, can't remember your achievements, you really have lost your identity. You've lost the ability to create your identity. You can see why dementia is so feared in our culture. Euthanasia, whether you should carry on living, depends not on your value, your identity before God. It depends on your desires. It depends on whether you, your relatives, or your doctors think your life is worth living. 
Anxiety is a great characteristic of our age. We're anxious about what we can't control. And we like to think we, we can be in control of our future, our career, our family, our relationships, our health, and yes, even death, you know, through euthanasia. But the reality is we can't. We're dependent. We don't control our birth and much else in our life. So meism gives us an impossible task to control what we can't control. We're not God. We've been made to trust God and be dependent on the one who is in control. But in meism, it's all down to you. No wonder you're anxious. And then there's transgender ideology. The belief, the ideology that says gender is something you choose, something you create for yourself, something fluid, that how you feel about yourself is more important than the physical body you have. So if your feelings and your body are out of line, then it's your body that needs to change, not your feelings. Another example of how we try and escape our physical bodies. And of course, there's a mass of contradictions here, because in the end, it's a denial of reality. For example, if we can choose our gender, why can't we choose our height or our age or our ethnic background? Why do we let our bodies limit us in those areas? Why do we, this is a strange one, why do we see our sexuality as something fixed? You know, that's how I've been made, whereas gender is something fluid. Surely it should almost be the other way around. But in spite of those and lots of other contradictions, meism is very popular. Why? Because it's ultimately very self-obsessed. It's all about me, and there's something rather comforting about that. But that, of course, is the essence of sin. In creating your own identity, you're trying to create a world that fits with your desires, that follows your rules, where you can be what you like. And basically, you are trying to live real life as if it's Minecraft. This comes from the Minecraft promotional video. No one can tell you what you can and cannot do. With no rules to follow this adventure, it's up to you. And that's great in Minecraft. The problem is we try and do that in real life. And if you do that in real life, it means you are trying to be God. But God is the only one who can create his own identity, who exists in himself and defines himself. All that we are comes from him. So let's just compare these two views of identity and the different sort of freedom that they give. Which freedom do you want? Identity achieved. It looks like freedom. It's up to you, but you can't actually be whatever you like. You can't actually choose to be a Roman emperor in the first century. Um, you are constrained in time and space. Secondly, clouds are not actually free. They're blown along by the wind. In the same way, we are trapped into creating an identity that those around us approve of. It's total peer pressure. We're shaped by others. That's not freedom. And what do you do when your feelings change, your desires change? If you can constantly change your identity, you will never be content. Because how do you know if there's not some other identity you could adopt that would make you happier? You're always on the search. You're like a sort of refugee, um, always on a journey, never arriving. 
always trying to find a place to settle. This is just terrible insecurity. Whereas the identity received from God doesn't look like freedom on the, in the first hand because you're being told what your identity is. But isn't that rather nice that you're freed from that anxiety of having to do those things in the Lego exhibition of trying to work out who you are and you can actually focus on being what you are, living in line with your identity. And it means that God's commands are then not restrictions, but operating instructions. To defy those is to defy reality. It's to destroy yourself. You know, which has more freedom? The fish trying to leap onto the land in search for a better life, or the fish enjoying the life it was made for in the sea? We have freedom as we follow God's instructions. And basically, we're free to be human. So Christians are not people that are hung up on morality or sexuality or having the right rules. Rather, we're concerned about our created humanity, what we've been made to be. And this is a great role for us as Christians. We can show people what it is to be truly human. And I hope that that um, biblical understanding of identity is something that is actually attractive. We need to get this across. This is something deeply attractive. I mean, what, what we're being offered in the world is, is, is utter rubbish. But in the sort of second bit, and we'll, we'll do this quickly, I promise. Um, I want to show how this is tied to what we believe about Adam. Our human identity rests not just on something plucked out of the air, but on objective physical reality about a person that once lived called Adam. And understand that it's not that, that any Adam will do. And I'm just going to introduce two, two different models, if you like, of humanity that, that Christians, Bible-believing Christians, um, have, have sort of uh, can talk about or adopt. In both cases, they say Adam was a real historical individual but they give two totally different understandings of our identity. So first of all, the first model, Adam, no parents. This is what uh, I believe the Bible teaches. It's saying that, that Adam was the first human being from whom all humanity is descended. Humanity is after Adam. Why does that matter? Well, remember what we said before about being the image of God. Well, where does that come from? Well, it comes from our connection to Adam. In Genesis 5, when God made, created man, he made him in the likeness of God. And then when Adam had a son, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image. Do you see what's happening? The, the, the pattern, the likeness that Adam has is passed on in his family, in his descendants. And I don't mean by that that the sort of image of God is a sort of a, a thing that is passed on to descendants. It's more that his descendants are the image of God because of this physical, biological connection with Adam. It's not just that God sort of announces this. There's, there's a physical basis to it. Now, there you go. Right. But what is very popular amongst many Christians is to take a different view of Adam, where he is 
one among many. And, and the idea with this is you can sort of fit Adam into an evolutionary scheme, into evolutionary history. Adam is part of an existing population of human beings, which means, of course, Adam has parents. And in this, this, this scheme, they're normally talking about human beings as being the species scientifically homo sapiens, who are descended from earlier, earlier um, hominid ancestors. And what they say is that God chooses one of those people to be the first person to bear the image of God, to be this special person, Adam. First to know this spiritual relationship with God. In other words, this, this special status as to be the image of God is something added to him. He existed before he was the image of God. And there's something a bit arbitrary about this, because why, why pick Adam when you could have picked one of the other ones around? They're all essentially the same. And in this scenario, Adam is a real historical person, but all human beings today are not necessarily descended from him. There are lots of other people there that, that uh, you could be descended from. And so Adam exists alongside these other people who are essentially physically, emotionally, uh, intellectually the same as him. There's nothing special or different about Adam except for this status he's given by God. But if that's the line you go down, you have some problems with human identity. For a start, who is the image of God? In other words, who is human? How would you answer that biblically? We can't sort of retreat to science and say, oh, homo sapiens or something, because you don't find that in the Bible. Who are the image of God? Well, in this thing, Adam's okay. He's given that status clearly. But what about Eve? Is she made the image of God at the same time? If not, Adam marries an animal. You've redefined marriage. Or what about Adam's parents? Remember, they're, they're essentially physically, emotionally, intellectually identical to him, but they're animals. Could Adam eat them? Uh, what about Adam's contemporaries? You know, they're, they're spread around. Are they all made the image of God at the same time? Well, if so, what makes Adam different? Um, if it's at some later point, when does that happen? How do I know that all of us today have been zapped into being the image of God? If it's down to God's decree, well, I'm sorry, I don't know about God. I, I, I don't have insight into God's decrees. So, you know, maybe some of us here are not actually the image of God. If you say, well, it's, it's, uh, it's the physical descendants of Adam that are the image of God, you've got a real problem with all the people around the world who are descended from someone different to Adam. What status do they have? What was the humanity that Jesus was born into? If he's come to share our humanity, which humanity did he share? In short, who is, who is the humanity that Adam represents? A lot hangs on that. Second problem, the image of God becomes something purely spiritual. Understand that, that, that the image of God is something added to Adam, added to Adam. So in other words, he can exist before he's the image of God. It's not intrinsic to his identity. In other words, he has a body, he can walk upright, he thinks, he sings, he plans, he designs tools, he makes up stories, he laughs, all before he's the image of God. And all the other people around him can do that as well. That devalues our bodies. As Christians, we say that our whole human identity is the image of God. 
it is not the sort of spiritual bit of us. It is all of us, body and soul. Human beings are body and soul together. And you think, but how can our bodies image God if God has no body? Well, God is often described as doing things that we accomplish with our bodies. Psalm 94 verse 9, does he who implanted the ear not hear? Does he who formed the eye not see? You see, God sees, he hears, he does all of these things, and we do that through our bodies. And in that way, we image God. But crucially, there's a real relevance for the whole transgender debate here. Notice back in Genesis 1.27, it says mankind's created, made in the image of God. And then in parallel with that, male and female, he created them. Well, if the image of God is purely this sort of spiritual thing that's added to us, then surely the same must apply to the maleness and femaleness. Do you see the problem with this? That's exactly what transgender ideology says. Yes, it's, it's a construct that, that you add on. It's not constrained by your body. Well, it seems to me if you go down this route with the wrong view of Adam, you end up having to adopt, uh, or the consistent thing would be to adopt what is essentially a, tra a transgender ideology on, 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 on gender. There's a problem with this. There's a, a third thing here, which I won't take time on, uh, except to say that, that you know, Adam in this scenario is, is violent, like all the other hominins around him. While they're animals, that's fine. They're not morally accountable. But once he becomes the image of God, he becomes under judgment for his actions. So he's exact, exactly the same sort of individual, but now suddenly he's responsible for that violence. You can understand why he would prefer not to be uh, the chosen one. It becomes something of a curse, not a blessing to be the image of God. So what does this do to our, to our human identity? Well, if you, if you take this view that Adam is one among many, you are, um, Adam's relationship with the rest of humanity is no longer easily defined. It's not, uh, it's not resting on anything objective like physical descent which means you've got lots of potential to start questioning the true humanity of those we decide who we maybe don't like or who are not quite like us. Do you see how dangerous and unpleasant that sounds? Adam's human identity is not connected to anything physical. It's a purely spiritual quality. In other words, having a body is not really essential to being a true human being. In which case, why bother with bodies in a new creation if that's incidental to our existence? And also Adam actually managed rather well as a creature made by God, but without being the image of God, like those other hominins around him. He existed pretty happily in that violent, self-serving, promiscuous lifestyle without any fear of judgment. You can see why he wouldn't really want that relationship with God. So you end up with a very curious situation where God is saying, Adam, you're really special, but you've not been made special. God says it, but it doesn't actually connect to anything in reality. 
is just arbitrary and it undermines our human identity. And just to finish off, how does this tie in with the gospel? The gospel is good news because it's the answer to a problem. Okay, the problem is that Adam has gone wrong. His sin means we, uh, he no longer reflects God as he should. He's still the image of God, but he's a defaced image. He's still a masterpiece. He still has those great capabilities, but he now uses those capabilities in sinful, destructive ways. And that uh, marred image is passed on to the rest of humanity. He corrupts the humanity he represents. Our lives are intertwined with his. Remember what I said about humanity being a unity. So you have Paul's words here, for in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. This, this shows the depth of our problem. You see, my problem is not simply that I make bad choices, that I'm a rule breaker. If that were the only problem, the gospel would almost be make better choices. You know, work harder at being more moral, keeping the rules. But the problem is deeper than that. My problem is that I am in Adam. My very identity is sinful. I'm disfigured. In other words, I sin because my nature is sinful. My family is sinful. One of my children, I won't tell you which one, but as soon as, uh, almost as soon as they could talk, it was a very young age, they used this astonishing linguistic ability to explain to me that it was their teddy who had made the pen marks on the wall by their cot. Now, this was incredible capabilities. You know, think of the, the moral consciousness that shows, the imagination, the quick thinkingness. All those incredible capabilities we've been given, but all used to avoid and evade responsibility. Which shows that the problem was their family. They were descended from me. That was their problem. So if my um, problem is my corrupt identity in Adam, how does the gospel look if we've got the wrong view of Adam, if Adam is one among many? Well, this is the gospel, according to Adam, one among many. I've got a sinful identity, but why? What's Adam got to do with me? God's choice of Adam was arbitrary. There's lots of other people he could have chosen. Why should Adam sin rather than one of the other humans sin at that time render me corrupt? The only connection I have is through God's arbitrary decree saying that somehow I'm connected to Adam. In other words, it's effectively saying God decree is decreeing I'm sinful. So in the gospel, what's God doing? He's sort of undoing that. God's saving me from his own decree. What? That's bizarre. That isn't good news. What about my sinful actions? If I'm violent and promiscuous and selfish, so what? That's how I was made. That's what human beings were like in the beginning. So now the gospel is about saving me from how God has made me. What? That's, that's crazy. Why does Jesus need to be made flesh? If, if this, this quality that makes Adam different from 
the animals is purely spiritual, then surely Jesus could have come as a spiritual image of God and saved us. Why bother with the body? And for that matter, why bother dying? How can a violent death for the, as punishment for sin be, be a punishment for sin when violent death is just how God made the world? And why on earth do we need a new body? Why bother with a resurrection when our problem is purely spiritual? It doesn't work. It doesn't add up. So, how sh- what, what's the right way of seeing this? This is the gospel according to the biblical Adam. Well, humanity is a unity. It's a single tree, one family. I have a physical, real connection with Adam, my ancestor. I have this sinful identity. God's image in me is defaced. So the answer must be, I need a new identity. I need to be a new person. I need a new family. And that's exactly what Jesus does. That is why the gospel is such good news. Jesus shares our humanity. He is in Adam's family line, but unlike every other human being, he is sinless. So we actually see in Jesus the human beings we were meant to be. Jesus is the image of God. In other words, what I need is Jesus's identity. That's why the gospel is all about being in Christ, being joined to him. Well, how does that happen? Well, it's through being born into his family. John John 1, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, born of God. Do you see what it is? It's an identity reassignment. How does it happen? It happens at the cross. I believe there's a real symbolism in the cross. Jesus is hung up between earth and heaven with his arms outstretched to humanity. Do you recognize that diagram? That's like the image of God diagram we had. Well, you see, Jesus is being the image of God we failed to be, and my sinful identity is crucified with Christ. So in him, I can become a new me. So this means becoming a Christian is not about escaping the world into some sort of spiritual existence. I don't need Jesus to become something more than human or even a weird form of human, despite what you might think of Christians, but to become the real authentic human person that God made me to be. And here's a quote from someone. Our lives are in a very crucial sense our own. We have individual identity. But we are truly, but we truly become ourselves only by being in Christ. It is only in Christ that any man or woman can become his or her truest self. Or if you want it from the New Testament, you get it in Colossians 3. You have taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. See that same idea again. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. You notice the identity language there, the nationality, religion, work, all bound up, all superseded in Christ. So, in summary, this, in a sense, is the gospel. My identity is restored through union with Christ. 
I have a new identity in a new family, in a new creation. That's our future. That is really good news. The physical and the spiritual come together in harmony, that harmony that is found in Jesus. That is the gospel. That is a gospel worth telling. That is a gospel that deals with our fundamental need of a new identity. So, if you want to understand your identity, you need to get Adam right. And you need to get Adam right to get Christ right. And you need to get Christ right if you want a gospel that's good news. All of those need to line up.